This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Imagine you're out hiking in the woods, surrounded by trees. Maybe you even hear an animal scurry by. You might be surprised to know that just below the surface is a giant network of fungi. And these fungi have a special relationship with the surrounding trees and plants. In fact, about 95% of the world's plants rely on fungi to help with important functions like absorbing nutrients from the soil, swapping nutrients between plants, and communicating with each other. This incredible process is called mycorrhizal mutualism. Researchers recently discovered that these fungi networks might also be helping protect the forest's largest trees from enemies like bark beetles or other deadly pathogens. Joining me now to help us better understand the complicated relationship between trees and fungi is Sarah Germain. She's a PhD candidate in ecology at Utah State University in the Wildlife Resources Department. Sarah Germain, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As I was doing research for the show, I mean, I just found it so incredible to think about trees and fungi being so interdependent on each other. And I think that like most of us tend to think about, oh, you know, I'm hiking in the woods. I see like a mushroom here or there, maybe something growing on a log, but we're not thinking about this vast interconnected system that's under the ground. So before we dig into your research specifically, can you explain for our listeners how this phenomenon called mycorrhizal mutualism works? Sure. So researchers have been studying this association between plants and mycorrhizal fungi for a really long time, since about the 1800s. And (laughs) yeah, and so basically what we've discovered so far is that almost all plants form these relationships with fungi. And so what ends up happening is the fungi comes along and it tries to hook into the roots of some plants and the plants will decide this is a friend or this is a foe. And with the mycorrhizal fungi, um, the plant will decide this is a friend and they will start trading nutrients with one another. So the fungi will provide nutrients that it's able to mine from the soil, like nitrogen and phosphorus. And in return, the tree will provide the fungi with sugars. And so this system connects a bunch of different plants together, um, given that they're connected to the same species of mycorrhizal fungus. And so in forests, what we tend to see is that many if not all of the trees end up being connected in some way to this vast network of underground fungi yeah so how much fungi are we talking about like if you dig up the ground are you going to see it or is it like a small like microscopic sort of network what does it look like yeah a little bit of both so uh, most of it is going on underground the hyphae that the fungi have, which are kind of like roots, those can be very, very tiny, like little hairs that go through the soil exploring for nutrients. But then there are other parts of the fungi that we can see, like the mushrooms, even some of your favorite edible mushrooms are mycorrhizal. And so, yeah, there are aspects you can see and aspects that are completely invisible, but they inhabit the majority of the soil. So if you were to go out and just dig up a random bit of soil, it would probably have many different species of mycorrhizal fungus inside if you're next to a plant. Wow. And so it's different types of fungus and different types of plants. Are there, is it like certain types of trees or different plants 
you know, have a relationship with different types of fungi? Or is it like a mix and match sort of situation? A little bit of both. So the main categories that we are thinking about when we're talking about trees are our buscular mycorrhizal fungus and ectomycorrhizal fungus or AM and EM. And so within these two categories, a tree forming AM mycorrhizal uh, associations, for example, will only be associating with AM fungi, which are in a certain family of fungus. And then the EM trees will only be associating with EM fungis. And so within those kind of coarse categorizations, trees might be associating with many different individual species of fungus. Yeah, so it really is this like overlapping interconnected web. There's no like one-to-one sort of scenario happening. There is sometimes, but it sometimes, is, yeah. yes, it is pretty rare, at least here in the Western United States in terms of the trees and the forest that we have here. That's pretty rare. Yeah, so, so what did you find? Um, what was that fungi network doing and what were the sort of enemies, I guess, so to speak, against the trees and how was the fungi helping to protect them? So imagine that you're a big old tree. Now, having the right tree neighbors is really important because you can't just get up and move if you don't all get along. So if those neighbors are the same species as you, everyone will have really similar resource needs and share the same enemies like bark beetles or fungal pathogens. So if an insect comes to attack your neighbors and you're stuck in the middle, you're suddenly much more vulnerable to attack as well. But if those neighboring trees are very different species, they probably also have somewhat different resource needs and different enemies who don't want to attack you. So it might be easier to get along. However, the trade-off there is that these neighbors might be so different that you can't share the same mycorrhizal networks, meaning now you're also cut off from all those benefits like chemical messages and nutrient sharing. Because one thing that we know about mycorrhizae is they don't just help with nutrients, they also act like a sort of telephone to allow trees to communicate with each other and even send chemical warning messages. So if one tree is attacked by insects, for example, it can send a warning to neighboring trees to allow them to start mounting the defenses and prepare them for that attack. What we found is that more diverse forest communities actually provided more mycorrhizal benefits that helped the big trees defend themselves against bark beetles and pathogens. Right. So you want to have friends that are similar, but not the same as you, basically. Exactly. So we're seeing more trees dying in the Western United States than we've seen in the past. So what are the biggest threats to trees survival? I know you talked about um, bark beetles, but there's a lot of other things that trees um, and forests are up against as well, right? There are, yeah. So um, in this study, we looked at three different forest types that are each pretty different, and they all have different mortality regimes, so different things going on that reduce survival. For example, our forest in Yosemite in California has just been burned. So as we know, wildfire is a huge cause of forest die-off. But something that comes in on the coattails of that fire is often bark beetles, as you mentioned. Um, And then one of our other sites is up in Washington State, 
And there, the primary mortality agent is fungal pathogens. And there's one in particular called armillaria, which is one of the most widespread fungal pathogens in North America. And of course, it's native, just like the bark beetles. So, so it's normal for these enemies to be around, but we are starting to see them being more virulent and killing more trees um, in part because of increased wildfire activities and also increased drought, which makes the trees stressed and it makes it harder for them to defend themselves against insects and pathogens alike. Yeah. And so you'd mentioned that, you know, you collected data on three different forests were there differences in these mycorrhizal relationships in these different locations? You know, there were some minor differences, but we were actually really surprised to find that all of these forests converged on the similar dynamic that mycorrhizal associations helped big trees survive attacks by bark beetles and pathogens, despite being slightly different in terms of the actual rates of the the tree mortality. Yeah. And you'd mentioned that there was in one of the forests that there was a fungus that was actually attacking the trees. So is it that like these one type of fungus are protecting against another type of fungus? Yeah. So that's definitely one way that mycorrhizal fungi can help trees is they can directly compete with some of the pathogenic fungi. You know, if you think about a tree root, there's only so much space for a fungus to try to infect that tree root. And so if it's covered with mycorrhizal fungi, that can actually help prevent the pathogen from accessing the root and hurting the tree. And mycorrhizae can even help to change the chemical profiles of trees in order to help the trees defend themselves better as well. Wow, that's so wild. Um, (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit more about the research process? So how were you able to go in and measure these fungi networks? I mean, you had described before that like some of it is, you know, visible and some of it is really, really small. So how were you able to sort of measure this is the fungi, this is what we got going on here. And these are the trees, these are the ones that survived, these are the ones that didn't. Like, how did you physically go out and collect the data? Sure. So let me kind of describe to you what our research sites look like. Mm-hmm. Um, the Smithsonian's Forest Global Earth Observatory, which is also known as Forest Geo, it's a network of scientists working in 73 long-term forest research sites. So our research team, the Western Forest Initiative, investigates three of these forest geosites here in the Western USA. So we have a site in Cedar Breaks National Monument here in Southern Utah, one in Yosemite National Park in California, and in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest of Washington State. And these all act as model temperate forest ecosystems because each forest type is extensive throughout its subregion here in the US, but they also share features with forest ecosystems throughout the temperate portions of the planet. Part of the Western Forest Initiative's mission is to understand and protect old growth forests. And this involves paying special attention to the big old trees like we did in this study. Um, So to study big trees, we need really big research sites. So our sites range from 30 to 70 acres in size, 
and together they contain over a hundred thousand individual trees and tall shrubs. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And the cool thing is that every single one of those hundred thousand trees has been tagged with a unique identifying number on a little metal tag, and it's mapped so we know exactly where it is on the landscape in relation to all the other trees. And every single year, our team goes out and we visit each and every one of those trees. Yeah, you're, paying, you're paying home visits. We are. We are going, we're checking up on them, saying, how you doing, tree? And we record any new large injuries or infestations that they have. And if a tree was alive last year and it's now dead, we perform a pathology exam, sort of like an autopsy, to determine, so we determine what killed the tree. And this last part is something that really sets our research apart. The Western Forest Initiative has created the largest and most long-term data set of annual cause-specific tree mortality that is spatially mapped. So we know where each of these events are happening and how the pathogen or insect spread throughout the forest. And then where the mycorrhizae come in is actually the simplest part. So like I mentioned earlier, there are these two different categories of mycorrhizae that we think about in trees, the AM and EM mycorrhizae. And that categorization is made at the species level. So we're able to say, oh, that's a pine. It is ectomycorrhizal versus, you know, a juniper, which is going to be our buscular mycorrhizal. And so by knowing the species of the tree and where it is in relation to other trees, we're able to determine if, if a tree is connected to other species that are at same EM or AM guild, then we can be we can say with some amount of certainty that those trees might be communicating and sharing through a mycorrhizal network. Whereas if you have an AM tree surrounded by a lot of EM trees, those species will not be necessarily communicating or sharing nutrients through that, those networks because they're different networks. Why is it so critical to preserve these elders, so to speak, these elderly trees, like what are they contributing um, to their ecosystems and to the environment generally? <laughs> I love this question because I love big trees. And <laughs> Good, course, I would hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> above and beyond big trees just being amazing. <laughs> yeah, they provide so many services um, that you know, forests in general provide us with so many valuable services. And a lot of those are provided by the big trees specifically. Hmm. So in the big picture, um, conserving forests in general is really important because they're central to water and carbon cycles. And this is one place where the big trees really play a large role because they are transpiring huge amounts of water and sequestering disproportionately more carbon than their smaller counterparts. So this means that big trees are really the ones in these forests who are helping to moderate the global climate, in addition to filtering the air and water that we all need to survive. Yeah. So, I mean, I know there's, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, we need to plant more trees and that's going to help mitigate some of the climate change issues. So are <clears throat> planting like new trees, are they just not Gonna, they're not going to replace trees that have been around for like 100 years or more. Is that what you're saying? In some ways, yeah. So you can have 100 small trees that might be sequestering a similar amount of carbon as one large tree. Um, and so it's definitely a good idea to reforest areas that have 
suffered from deforestation and that will have a really important effect. Um, but, you know, large trees have some unique jobs too. Like for example, um, they provide really unique habitat for wildlife like bats and owls who can help control insect and rodent populations. And that's something that smaller trees just are unable to do because they don't have the same canopy height and they don't have the same, you know, bark crevices that those wildlife can get into and make their nests. Yeah. So what got you interested in researching big trees and these mycorrhizal relationships in particular? I mean, you said you love big trees. Like where did that, where did that start for you? Well, it it was kind of a a long walk. I mean, I've always loved trees. You know, I was the kid who was climbing in trees and I would climb to the top during a storm and it would whip me all around. And Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not too safe looking back on that. But, um, you know, I've just always loved trees and I never thought that I would end up being able to research them and, you know, spend my summers in the field working so closely with them. Um, but kind of how, how I was able to come b- back around to this profession was through gardening. Since I was a kid, I've done a lot of gardening. And something that I learned pretty early on is that when I planted big crops of tomatoes together, I would get more aphids and wilting problems than when I interplanted all of my tomatoes with peppers and basil and lettuce and other species. So when I started my graduate program studying ecology, I became absolutely captivated by a group of studies that showed this same thing happening in forests, that more diverse forests were more resistant to insects and disease. Yeah. So how are you able to sort of piece apart? Is it just like a diversity of different types of trees and plants that are like next to each other versus this mycorrhizal meat like relationship? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that kind of gets to the heart of the study. So um, there are a lot of reasons why having a diversity of trees themselves might help to reduce insect activity. So some of those reasons might be um, the different canopy forms of the trees. So if you are a pine, you can kind of hide amongst a lot of other angiosperm trees, for example, and the insect that would come and want to attack you, they can't see you because you're being obscured by the canopies of, say, the oaks that are surrounding you. And the same kind of thing can happen with uh, pheromones, with the chemicals that the insects are actually smelling. So once again, having a higher diversity of trees around means more pheromones in the air and meaning it's harder for that insect to maybe pick out the one pheromone of the species that it's trying to attack. So what we did is we looked at the interaction between increasing neighborhood, tree neighborhood diversity of similar guild species. So if those trees were also EM and uh, and the the focal tree is EM um, versus increasing that neighborhood diversity of a different mycorrhizal guild. And so what we're thinking here is that if it's, if most of the benefits are coming from those above ground characteristics, increasing above ground diversity should help no matter what, right? no matter if they're the same mycorrhizal guild or not. But what we found is that increasing above ground diversity only helped trees survive if those trees 
were the same mycorrhizal guild. Hmm. And so if they were a different mycorrhizal guild, increasing that above ground diversity actually increased tree mortality. So there was a very surprising result there that above ground diversity um, was not necessarily helping trees survive unless they were able to be connected through these underground mycorrhizal networks. Yeah. So what does this mean for conservation? Like how can they use this to better do conservation efforts? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, so much of what we do in the Western Forest Initiative Lab is try to do science that is usable by managers because that is really the goal is to conserve these forests and help these trees. So this knowledge of how forest diversity creates and maintains facilitative relationships can be harnessed as tools to conserve forests, especially amidst environmental change and in increasing insect and disease outbreaks. So a lot of forest management right now is very rightly focused on reducing tree densities in order to protect forests from fire and drought. Um, but going forward with this new knowledge, I hope to see a greater, greater effort to adapt silvicultural techniques to include not just how to remove negative relationships between trees, but also how to retain and even cultivate positive relationships between trees and their fungal friends. Yeah, it's sort of like, okay, you got to you got to think about the above ground characteristics of the trees, but then you also got to think about the mycorrhizae as well as this like other this other factor that we're not necessarily like seeing because it's underground, but is sort of equally important in what you were talking about in either replanting or, you know, getting rid of maybe invasive species or trees that are not helping the ecosystem. Yes, absolutely. And one of the hopeful things about that is that because of this EM versus AM fidelity of the tree species and fungal species alike, um, it doesn't actually necessarily take sampling the soil and doing a whole um, mycorrhizal inventory to be able to enact this in management on the ground. You know, we can we can just look at what tree species are there and we can already start to identify whether those are EM or AM and start creating neighborhoods that might be more beneficial for those trees just on that information alone. Right. So with the research that your team has done, people don't go to, need to necessarily go out and, you know, dig up their surrounding soil and say like, oh, what kind of mycorrhizae? It's like, okay, we know what type of tree it is. So therefore we know if these are, trees are compatible with each other and if their mycorrhizae work. And so they can kind of plan from plan from that point. Exactly. And, you know, of course, I would like to see more research that actually does go up and dig the mycorrhizae. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, of course. <laughs> but at least for management now, implementing some of these findings, uh, that would not be required. There's always a good plan when it's like, okay, we can use the research that we found. We don't need to redo it each time. Yes. So what's what are you looking at next? What's What questions has this prompted for you? And, um, you know, what are their aspects of these um, Western forests are you going to be looking into next? So some of the work that I've already done has been looking at climate effects in forests and how extreme weather can really impact a tree's stress levels and ability to survive. And I started looking a lot at 
um, you know, these insects and pathogens and different factors, different forest factors, like the neighborhoods and also how close the trees were growing to water, things like that, um, that could help them to survive. And so this chapter for me was really a way to try to focus on some of the good, <laughs> some of the mutualisms and some of the friends rather than just the enemies. And so this, this chapter together with some of that earlier work has kind of prompted going forward, I would say just a more holistic way of thinking about forests. Uh, so in my next study, I'm looking at um, trees in Yosemite and what is affecting their survival. It's opening a whole can of worms and I am so excited to go down the rabbit hole even further. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what your um, next research uncovers. It's been really wonderful um, getting the opportunity to talk to you and learn more about your research and about this hidden world of fungi that I did not even know existed. I'm a big hiker myself, so going through forests very frequently did not know that there was a whole world underneath my feet. I've just been speaking with Sarah Germain. She's a PhD candidate in ecology at Utah State University in the Wildlife Resources Department. Her latest study was recently published in the journal Ecology. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Claire Scott, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Thank you.